0: On November 23rd, 1921, President Warren Harding signed into law the Shepherd-Towner Maternity and Infancy Protection Act. The law supported home visits and child health consultations, in which clinicians promoted breastfeeding, dispensed advice, and performed examinations. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Jeffrey Baker, Director of the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine at the Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Baker has written a perspective article recognizing the 100 year anniversary of the Shepard Towner Act. Dr. Baker, what were the primary goals of the Shepard Towner Act and why was it seen as necessary at the time? The Shepard Towner Maternity and Infancy Protection Act
1: was really the first time the federal government assumed responsibility for the health of mothers and children. In some ways, by our standards, it feels pretty modest. It basically provided matching funds to the states to support. Educational programs directed at mothers and children. It only lasted until 1929. Yet the fact that the federal government was involved made it quite radical at the time. The background for this program, really, I guess it's twofold. One is the very high mortality rate faced by infants and young children in the early 20th century. It's also the climax of the great progressive era reform movement, which had focused on children to a remarkable degree. You can talk more about
0: that if you like. Well, let me start with politics. As you say in your perspective article, the year before this law was passed, American women gained the right to vote for the first time. How did the 19th Amendment change the political landscape in a way that allowed Shepard Towner to make it through Congress?
1: The movement to reduce infant mortality was actually very much interwoven with the women's suffrage movement. One of the big reasons that women justify why they should have the vote was that a lot of concerns, particularly the health of mothers and children, would be neglected as long as men were at the helm. So you see lots of posters at the time with slogans like, give mommy the vote. We need it, showing infants carrying flags to that effect. I think we need to understand that in the early 20th century, over 10 out of hundred babies never reached their first birthday. Women were very involved in many levels to address that problem, but it was primarily on the local level within American cities. So for example, Women doctors and nurses would band together to promote visiting home nursing programs as well as basically early models of well child care to educate mothers in breastfeeding and hygiene with respect to infants and children. Those kind of programs did very well as long as they were on the voluntary level. But there was a lot of resistance to bringing the government into that formally. And the United States did have a bureau, the United States Children's Bureau, run largely by women who are promoting these programs who felt that there'd be great advantage to the government stepping in and promoting and basically coordinating, disseminating them beyond Eastern cities to the rest of the country. But they faced a lot of opposition. There were many anti-suffragist groups who felt that this was government intrusion into the home. Organized medicine was suspicious as well. And it was just such a novel idea bringing the federal government into this area. So it's likely it would have passed had it not been for the fact that in 1920, women got the vote. The 19th Amendment was passed. And I think we forget, but for roughly about a year after the 19th Amendment, there was a period of time where Congress had no idea what the rules of politics were going to be. The electorate had been doubled, and there was widely believed that women would likely vote in a block to promote this new maternity and entity health bill. Women overwhelmed Congress with letters to individual congressmen. They write in their women's journals about this, activists testify to Congress, and in the end, Congress blinks and passes this act in 1921, somewhat to the surprise of a lot of politicians at the time.
0: So looking at the public health programs that were implemented as part of the law, how successful were they?
1: So as we look back at them, we could say that in some ways they were modest. The big focus was on education as opposed to direct economic support. That isn't because reformers didn't understand that economic support was important. In the Children's Bureau had done studies, you know, showing, really demonstrating what we call the social determinants of health and their role in promoting infant health. It was nonetheless felt that it was simply too contentious in the early 1920s to provide direct economic support for women. Remember that the Bolshevik Revolution is just taking place across the ocean, leading to what is called the Red Scare of the United States. So there's kind of a backlash against government trying to do too much. So the children's Bureau made a conscious decision to limit its work to educational programs. And I think the, the way to understand Shepherdtown is that it provides funds to the states to set up these educational programs, and typically, the programs would have two parts. The big focus was on promoting visiting home nursing care. Shepherdtown, I think, supported just a huge number of some three million home visits by nurses to give individual advice to mothers in their homes. It also supported well childcare care visits by physicians, and Shepherd Towner team would come into a town and set up a kind of health fair, and all of the infants in town could get examined. Doctors who are often women would do examinations, give advice on breastfeeding and hygiene, and the visiting home nurses would, would follow up. You wonder how effective was simply providing educational advice without monetary aid. And analyses have been done to try comparing the states that adapted these visiting home nursing programs with those who really didn't do much of it. And they have estimated that there really was an impact in infant mortality, probably in the order of maybe close to 20% the decline that happened in the 20s was likely due to these educational programs. So it's part of a big picture, but it does have an impact.
0: But then just a few years after the law was passed, the political calculus changed and Congress let the act expire in 1929. What were the pressures at that point that affected the decision?
1: Well, it was opposition. Again, in some ways, it was remarkable the act was passed at all, and it was partly an anomaly. It probably reflected those six to 12 months where no one in Congress knew what the rules were going to be. Before too long, it became clear that women, in fact, were not going to vote as a bloc, that they were going to divide as a ballot. I still think there was widespread support for the act, had it not been for different kinds of opposition. Some of that opposition came from sort of medical liberty groups. Groups defending the rights of the individual over government intervention. The chief opposition, though, came from organized medicine. And the American Medical Association, in particular, really saw Shepherd Towner as the opening wedge for socialized medicine in the United States. This is one of the first times that that argument is made in American medicine. The AMA actually goes so far as to call it an imported socialist scheme. Why the AMA was so opposed is a little bit bewildering to us. Shepherd Towner, again, did not provide direct medical care. The supporters made clear that they were providing preventive care. If the doctors in the clinics or the nurses found a medical condition, they re- referred them to doctors to be treated. And yet the medical profession was still very much opposed, and it became the chief voice against Shepherd Towner. And when the program came up for renewal in 1927, it became clear that it was going to have a lot of difficulty passing. The best the Children's Bureau could do was negotiate for two more years hoping for a better Congress in 1929, that didn't happen. So the act went away. So organized medicine, in a nutshell, is at the heart of why it failed.
0: So finally, what lessons do you think the rise and fall of Shepard Towner has for contemporary debates about policies supporting women and children and social welfare policies more generally? I think of
1: Shepard Towner as a what might have been kind of moment. Today, preventive child health is very fragmented. A lot is provided in private doctor offices in a purely medical model. It's done by doctors who are often fairly hurried and given advice along with the other things they have to do. Where that is how it works for the middle the class. Whereas for the less affluent classes, preventive health might well be in teaching clinics or in health departments. It's a fragmented system and it's dominated more by doctors. There's a line today between the systems that address the social needs of children and the medical system. Shepherd Town was directed by the Children's Bureau, which is not part of the public health system, and it integrated both doctors and nurses, first of all. So nurses were at the heart of the program. It's centered on educational advice in the home, which many would argue is a very powerful model. There's a very tight network between doctors and nurses and social agencies in this world that was very well designed to address what we would today call the social determinants of health. I think in a lot of ways, we are trying, again, to find better ways to integrate different kinds of professionals and different agencies. That's what we're doing with the medical home movement. But I think we would have had a big running start on this had the Shepherd Towner Act succeeded and had we been working on this integrated kind of model a lot sooner.
0: Thank you, Dr. Baker.